As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the word of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned us. So we pray that you would give us understanding that we may learn your commandments. Then those who fear you shall see us and rejoice because we have hoped in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Zechariah. Book of Zechariah. Zechariah is towards the end of the Old Testament between the prophets Haggai and Malachi. It's on page 1013 of most of our Pew Bibles. We're going to read together from Zechariah chapter 9, beginning at verse 9 and reading through the end of the chapter. And this is the prophecy that was fulfilled at Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we're going to read Zechariah 9, 9 through verse 17, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. And be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people... For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Now this is a time of year when we often turn our hearts and minds to think about the work that Jesus accomplished by his cross in Jerusalem, we, we think of his triumphal entry, we think of a, you know, the Good Friday of his crucifixion, we think of his resurrection gloriously on Easter morning, um, and our hearts our mind, and minds need to be directed to these things over and over again that we might remember them. Our church order says specifically that we are to give attention uh, to Easter on its respective Lord's Day. Um, and so sometimes when we think of the resurrection, it should cause us to think of those other great events that celebrated, uh, that, that, that went with what happened in Jerusalem in his resurrection. And one of those things is his triumphal entry, um, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, that came a week before his resurrection. 
It was that day where Christ made it clear and made it known in a very public way that he was the king. That he was the king that was promised and he was coming into his holy city. Um, And both Matthew and John's gospels in telling this story, I mean all the gospels tell the story, that should tell us something of how important it is. Um, But Matthew and John in particular tell us that this was to fulfill prophecy that this was to fulfill the prophecy that was made in Zechariah, specifically in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Uh, Matthew 21, verses 4 through 5, we read, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. Uh, Likewise, John in John 12, 14, and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Um, These passages testify clearly that Jesus is the prophesied king, now come into his kingdom. He's the the king that should be a cause of great rejoicing for his people. He's the king who should be the cause of no more fear for God's people. It's a wonderful fulfillment of the prophecy that Zechariah saw, and we want to meditate on that this morning, that Jesus is the true king, the promised in prophecy to come to his people. We want to look more closely at Zechariah's prophecy then this morning and see how it was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And how do we see this prophetic fulfillment? Well, we see it first in the king's character. The prophecy tells us what kind of king he will be. We also learn about the king's commitments, what this king will be committed to for his kingdom. And then finally, we want to think briefly about the king's campaign. I say briefly because I don't want you to despair when we get to the third point. It's a short point. Uh, so if the sermon is going on, don't worry. Uh, hopefully it'll be a short point. Uh, but we do want to think about that, um, the importance of understanding prophecy to think about the king's campaign and how it comes. So we're going to think about the king's character, the king's commitments, and the king's campaign. Uh, Zechariah has something to tell us about the character of the coming king. And sometimes when New Testament accounts of the fulfillment of prophecy or references to the Old Testament, they may only quote a portion of it, but they're always referring to the whole of it. Um, They might only be able to quote a little bit of it, but they mean you to think back to it and to know the broader context of it. Um, and to, we, so sometimes it's great to go back to the prophecy and to meditate on the whole of it that we might see the glory of what we are being pointed to. And we see that particularly in the character of the coming king as it's described in Zechariah. Um, both gospel writers abbreviate this passage um, because they are focusing on the king and particularly on his entry. But we want to think about more about what Zechariah has to say about the character of this coming king. They're all important things to say and things that make this king particularly glorious and particularly wonderful for his people to contemplate. Um, And the first thing we're told is that this king is righteous. Uh, This king is just. He is a law-keeping king. He's obedient particularly to the law of God, uh, to the will of God as the king. That's an exciting thing for God's people to meditate on. That we have a king who's coming who is righteous, who is a law-keeping king. Um, And a righteous one is someone who is not just concerned for the letter of the law, but for the spirit of the law as well. 
Uh, Remember, we were told in the Gospels that Joseph was a righteous man. And that part of his being righteous, his justice, the father of Jesus, one of the, the things that was said about him was that when he found out that Mary was with child, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. And that was one of the ways he showed himself to be a righteous man. There was a process under the law where he could have made it very public and very hard on Mary that would have been a way for him to clear himself of any wrongdoing would have been very hard on her. And so what does he do as a righteous man? He chooses the way that will be easier on Mary to divorce her quietly. Now he doesn't do that because an angel intervenes to tell him to do something else, that this child is not... Uh, from adultery, but from the Lord. And so he doesn't need to do that. But one of the things that's shown by his action is what it means to be righteous. He didn't just know the law and obey the law. Um, He had a heart for the law. That's what it means that this king is righteous. He not only knows the law and obeys the law, but he has a heart for the law. Uh, He loves the law and he loves the people the way God loves the law and loves his people. Um, He is a righteous king, the best kind of king that God's people could hope for. Uh, His personal obedience to the covenant ensures the blessing that will come to God's people through him. Um, And why? Well, because righteousness of the king meant salvation for the kingdom. That's what comes across next in what kind of savior he is. His character is he comes being righteous and having salvation. Um, That's another glorious thing to think about the king, that he comes not only as a righteous one, but having salvation. Now, there are two ways that you could translate that. One is in the passive sense that we have here, he comes having salvation. Uh, Another way to translate that would to make, be it for you grammarians, to make it more reflexive. To say the king comes having shown himself a savior. And I kind of like that second option. Uh, not just because grammatical reasons. Um, I wouldn't trust my own grammatical analysis of the Hebrew. Um, But what I like is this is how John presents him in John chapter 12. Because interestingly, in John's account of the triumphal entry, and you might go home and read that in John chapter 12 today, um, but when Jesus comes, he's surrounded by people who saw what he did for Lazarus, who had seen the fact that he brought Lazarus back from the dead. And that is part of the triumphal entry account in John's gospel. There are people with him who saw what he did for Lazarus, and there are people that go out to him as he comes in because they heard what he did for Lazarus. And that's why I think we get some clarity of what Zechariah meant. What kind of king is this? This is a king who has already shown himself to be a savior. And people who saw Christ coming recognized him as one who had the power to save from death. Who had brought Lazarus back from the dead. In fact, the the religious leaders were not only plotting to kill Jesus, they were also plotting to kill Lazarus. Because of what he meant for Jesus' witness. So I think in the context of John's gospel, the fulfillment of the prophecy is, here comes the king who's shown himself a savior. It was already shown that he has the power to save from death. What a glorious king to have. Who is not only righteous before God, but has the power to save. 
and not just the power to save generally, but the power to save from death specifically. In John 12, 17 and 18, we read the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he has done this sign. Um, Jesus had shown himself a savior. Shown himself to be the one who saves people from the dead. And here he is in all this glory, all these glorious things being said about him, but how does he present himself to the people? He presents himself in humility by his simple appearance and entry. He doesn't arrive in brilliant shining armor on a white war horse as a picture of power and majesty. How does he ride in? He comes in on a simple donkey. That's a deliberate rejection of the world's pictures of what it means to be a king. It's a deliberate rejection of the world's ideas of earthly might. Um, he comes in in humility. And what is he doing by coming in this way? He's showing that he is humble and he doesn't need the trappings of worldly majesty. He doesn't need the trappings of worldly power. Why? Because his trust is in the Lord. And that's all the glory and that's all the power that he needs. He is the man described in Psalm 33. Verses 16 through 20. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death. And keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. In our shield. This king comes in without the trappings of earthly wealth and might and power because he said, I, All my help, all my power is in the one I trust, is in my Father in heaven. Here you see is exactly the kind of king God's people were longing for someone who is righteous. Someone who came showing himself a savior. Someone who came in the humility that trusts only in the Lord. And particularly at the time Zechariah was writing, the people were longing for this kind of king. Um, maybe we don't know as much about Zechariah and the times that he wrote. Um, but he wrote during the, after the return from exile. This is after God's people had gone into exile and after they'd returned from their captivity back to their land. But it was a time where Israel was very weak. Uh, they were weak economically. They were weak politically. They were weak militarily. Um, they were returned to the land, but they faced much hardship in their land. It was not a time of strength for Israel. And there was no king sitting on David's throne. And they were longing for a king. They were longing for a time when the king would come. And Zechariah comes with this prophecy that the king will return. And it will be a time of great rejoicing for the king when he returns. And people will greet him as a conquering hero. 
It's interesting in the Gospels, they, they both say, but you will rejoice greatly and you will fear not when the king comes. Well, it might seem like those two are very different kinds of sentiments, but they really do go together, don't they? The cause for the great rejoicing is a king has come that will remove all fear. All fear that comes with being weak. Um, you know, it's one of the things about watching the war in Ukraine. You know, we're so thankful that people are fighting for their country. And, um, but we, we were reminded what, what a blessing it is to live in a country that's strong. Um, that we don't have to face some of those things because of the strength of our country. Um, and sometimes we're reminded when we hear these stories around the world of, of other nations that are not quite as strong um, and, and how vulnerable you are to attacks when you are weaker. Israel knew what, very well what it was to be weak and to be surrounded by more powerful people. Um, and here was the promise of a king who would come and who would relieve them of that fear. They wouldn't need to be afraid of what was going on around them anymore. They would be removed of that fear. They would be, they would be turned into joy and rejoicing. Um, and why would that be? Because a king had come. The king had come in his conquering, as a conquering hero, to put an end to all their fears. And to be their king. One of the things that Israel had experienced a lot throughout the, the centuries at this point was to be ruled by other kings in other places. Always a king, there was always a king to be ruling over them, but it was never their king. That's why the glory of this prophecy is, behold, your king comes to you. He's not someone else's king just ruling over you. He's actually finally your king. Your king ruling over you. That's what had Herod so scared when he heard the announcement of Jesus' birth. Here is one who was born king of the Jews. Here is one who is actually the true and rightful king who was born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ, the Lord. Um, not someone else's king, your king. Your king is coming to you. He's coming to be your king. At this point, Zacharias, people could hardly remember what that was like. They might have heard stories of what it was like to have their own king. And Zacharias says, but now you will experience that. He will come to you, and you will know what it is to have a king of your own from your kingdom, who is your king watching out for your best interests, for your safety, for your security, for your blessing." What a wonderful promise that was. A king who was truly theirs. A king who was truly for them. Sovereign over all of his dominion. Stronger than any king who had ever reigned over them before. This is the king who was coming. This is who Jesus Christ is for his people. And that's something worth meditating for us in this season. That Jesus Christ is the king who came into the world for his people. Um, because they've been reigned over by other people for long enough. He came to set the captives free. He came to show himself a savior. Humbling himself and coming into this world 
subjecting himself to the law, living in perfect righteousness for his people that he might come and save us. He's a king that came into the world for us. He's a king that came into the world as our king. As citizens of heaven, our king come to rescue us. His character is wonderful and his commitments are wonderful. He's committed to do things for his people. And that's what Zechariah also communicates to us powerfully. What the king comes to do when he comes into the world. What the king comes to do for us. Um, Zechariah sees this in really two ways in his prophecy. In verses 9 through 13, he sees the king's complete dependence on God. He sees the king sort of as apart from God, depending on God and coming in God's name to do certain things. And when the king comes, then the Lord acts. And that's what we see in verses 14 through the end of the chapter. The king comes and then the Lord delivers. We have the king relying on the Lord and the Lord committed to the kingdom. Um, And that's why only Jesus Christ can make sense of this prophecy when he comes in the world because he is both the king and the Lord. The Lord's commitments are the king's commitments. And the king is the Lord who comes in complete dependence and devotion to his father, but who also is the Lord who himself acts to bring salvation. The king and the Lord are one in Jesus Christ. And the Lord's commitments are Jesus' commitments to his people. So what are those commitments? What do we see? What is he determined to do when he comes? Well, the first thing he's determined to do is to bring peace. That's the good news about this king. He's determined to bring peace, to bring an end to war. That's why at his coming, the weapons of war become obsolete. Right In verse 10, I'll cut off the chariot, I'll cut off the war horse, cut off the battle bow. Why do you not need the implements of war anymore? Because he's brought peace. Uh, There's no need for war when the king comes and speaks peace to the nations. That's what this king is committed to do. He's coming to make peace and to speak peace. That's his commitment. I think Paul maybe had this verse in mind when he says in Ephesians 2, 17 and 18, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What does Jesus come to do? He comes to speak peace. He comes to make peace and speak peace to all who are in his kingdom. And who are properly speaking part of the kingdom of Christ? Well, his kingdom is a worldwide kingdom. And so he speaks his peace to the whole world. That comes across in verse 10 as well. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a dominion like no Davidic king in Israel ever had before. This is a worldwide kingdom. And so where is the king going to make peace? Through the whole world. And where is he going to speak peace? To the whole world. That's why he sends his messengers to the ends of the earth to speak the peace he's made by his cross to the ends of the earth so all would hear and come. Again, I don't think it's coincidental in John's gospel that right after Jesus enters triumphantly as king in chapter 12, immediately then Greeks come to see him. 
the world is going after him. And Greeks come to see him and say, we wish to see Jesus. What is, what is that saying? The whole world is now coming to the king. Because his dominion is worldwide, he's going to make peace for the whole world and speak peace to the ends of the earth. There's no one in this world who is not part of his kingdom. There's no one in this world for whom he did not make peace. There is no one in this world for whom he for whom he did not come to die, that he still sends his word out that all may hear, and that everyone may know the messages for them, no matter where they come from or no matter who they are. Um, Are you from the world? Then his peace is for you. His message is for you. Uh, Because he is king to the ends of the earth. And that's really what, it, what happens every, every Sunday from pulpits is people are just speaking the king's peace. Saying the king desires to be at peace with you. Put your faith and trust in him and you will be at peace with the king. He will reconcile you to God. And he will remove all fear. And he will bring in great reason for rejoicing. The word of the king is, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's the call of peace that he's issuing. Follow me. Follow me and you'll know true joy, he says. Follow me and that will remove all fear. Come into my kingdom. Because he's committed as king to set the captives free. We shouldn't think that because he comes as king and speaks an authoritative word that you must come to him, that he is somehow a tyrant. Or that to follow him is somehow to give up your freedom and to come under the the dominion of a king. No, actually his purpose in coming is to set captives free. Because he knows what you are as long as you are outside of his kingdom. That's slavery. As long as we are outside the kingdom of this liberating king, that's what true slavery is. Um, He says, I will set your prisoners free, in verse 11, from the waterless pit. Uh, We are in a hopeless, helpless place. Uh, We are addressed as prisoners, as prisoners of hope, because here is the one who can set us free. But we are in the waterless pit the great myth the world likes to tell if you're coming to Jesus somehow you're losing your freedom and you're not the autonomous self you used to be well you're an autonomous self as autonomous as you can be in a waterless pit apart from the saving work of Christ the good news is he's here to set captives free Um, he comes to bring liberty and he does that by the blood of the covenant It's the blood of the covenant that sets prisoners free. Um, I think he's thinking there about the older covenant made with Abraham. That promise of the blood uh, of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 that secures the promise that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Looks back to that old covenant and looks forward to the new covenant in the blood of Christ made by the shedding of his blood on the cross. And it's that blood that sets us free this very day. 
The very day that we put our faith and trust in Christ, we're set free. We're moved out of the waterless pit into a stronghold of His grace. That's the good news of what this king has come to do. To completely save and to be the realization of the hopes of his people. Because here is a king who is committed to salvation. That's the good news of verse 16. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown they shall shine in his land. He's committed to saving his people because of the value he places on us as his people. He is a true king. He is a good shepherd who loves us because he looks on us as the jewels that shine from his crown and lighten his land. That's the kind of king we want. So why don't we feel all the time like that's the world in which we live? where the king has conquered and we've been set free. Sometimes God's people can still feel as if we are in the waterless pit in this world. Um, And that's because we need to properly understand the king's campaign. And really briefly, there's an order to the battle the king is engaged in the world. First, he comes to make peace and speak peace. And we are in that portion of the kingdom coming now. He has made peace by the blood of his cross, and he is speaking peace to the world, to bring them into his dominion. But Zechariah sees both of the king's campaigns, both the one where he comes to make peace and speak peace, and then that final coming when he comes in glory to do something else. Zechariah is seeing both at the same time. What we need to understand about the king's campaign is he comes in two stages. There is this first stage in which the Lord comes into the world as the suffering servant. He makes peace and he is speaking peace to the nations. And he continues to speak peace to the nations until that great final day comes. uh, When he returns not in humility but in glory. We read about that in Revelation 19. If you want to turn with me to Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16. You know these verses well I think many of you. But John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the the winepress of the fury of the wrath of of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a triumphal entry as well. But this is his entry in glory, not in humility. Right? Here is the war horse. Here he wears many crowns. Here is the one who is not humble mounted on a colt, but is terrible and august in majesty, who to see would be to fall down and worship. Eyes of flame, 
an a rod of iron, mouth filled with death, a two-edged sword to his enemies. He doesn't come to speak peace then. He comes to judge. He doesn't come to make peace then. He comes to make war on those who refused to submit to his rule and who oppressed his dearly loved people. Um, and on that day, the king will be seen in the world fully and clearly for who he is, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's why the king pleads with us not to wait too long. Uh, to listen to his message of peace while he holds out his hand to the world and is willing to be found by all who seek him. This is the time of his making peace. Because when he enters again into this world, it will be too late. Because then he will not be coming to make peace, he will be coming to make war. He will not speak peace, he will speak judgment. And that's why he's pleading with us now, to come. Uh, that's why all of us must come to the king now. The good news is his word of peace still stands today. Today is the day of salvation where we can find an end to our fears and true joy by faith in Christ. He is our true king and commands us to follow him. And he promises us that if we follow him, we will find peace and joy and blessedness and life, that he will conquer sin in us and bring us through safely into his heavenly kingdom. And the alternative is too terrible to face, to reject him and to be consumed by him in the end. You don't want to face the king of kings and the Lord of lords in his wrath and in his fury. Um, so accept the peace he extends to us now. And heed the advice and the, the command, indeed, in Isaiah 55, 6, and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to remember the triumphal entry of Christ into the world. We thank you that he has triumphed by his cross, that he has set the captives free, that he has saved his people from their sins. We thank you that he speaks that message of peace to the world, that he is willing to be found by all who seek him and calls on all of us to put our faith and trust in him. We pray that if there are any here who do not know Jesus Christ, they would seek him while he may be found. They might come to him while his message of peace still stands. For our, our hearts break for those who we know, who we love, that do not know Jesus Christ and are still walking in, in their sin. And we know what terrible fate awaits them if they will not turn. And so we pray for all those we know, Lord, who don't know you, that they might turn while salvation may be found, that they might not face his wrath and judgment when the king comes again in a second time. Not to make peace, but to make war. Not to speak peace, but to judge. So Lord, we thank you for this time of salvation. We thank you for those of us who have heard and been saved, how much we have to be thankful for. May we rejoice greatly today to know that we have such a King and Savior. And may he put an end to our fears. 
Help us and hear us, we pray, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a song of response, let's take up our soldiers and stand together and turn to number 333. Hosanna, loud Hosanna. We'll sing all the verses of number Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts now to the Lord and receive his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. People of God, go in peace.